Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at ren-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. We have been a, a culture obsessed with line graphs recently. In fact, you've probably looked at way more line graphs in the last three months, maybe than you've ever looked at, or that you know you haven't looked at that many since middle school or elementary when you were learning about line graphs. Uh, but we've been obsessed with this term, flattening the curve. In fact, here's the the graph for our local county, Fort Bend County. You can see this is the line graph that I've been watching for the last couple months, just seeing the number of cases and how many more are there each day and how that is going. Is it shooting up? Is it going down? And if I'm honest, I think that most of us, if we were to graph out our lives, we would like our lives to look kind of like the coronavirus curve. Here's what I mean. We would like it to be up and to the right. And we, we, we love that story. Um, the story could be, hey, I got my education, and then I found that first job, and then I found that special someone, that, that person. We got married, right? And then we had our first child, and then I got a raise, and then we found a home, and then we got our second child, and then we're the Duggars. We had 19 more children, and we bought a farm somewhere, or I started a business, and the business grew, and it doubled, and... And we love the up and to the right story, that picture of a life that just kind of always got better and better and better and better. However, you've lived long enough by now to know life is not up and to the right. In fact, life probably looks a lot more like the, the stock market curve for the last six months here as a nation with highs, but also lows, maybe some massive peaks, but also major downturns. Here's my question for you. If you could draw out the line graph of your life, what would it look like? Where would the highs be? Like, where, where, where would you place them on the graph? And how high would they be? Where, where are the moments of plateau? Where, where are the moments of, of slow decline or of steady rise? Or maybe where are the moments of massive downturns? How would you draw out your life? And how would you draw out this present moment? We're in a series right now called Empty and Open, seven victories that are open to you because Jesus's tomb is empty. Today, what I want us to talk about is how the resurrection of Jesus speaks to the line graph of our lives. To do that, we're going to look at a passage from Acts chapter 2, and if you want to start turning there, this is in verses 22 through 24, and I'll give you the backstory. 
So Peter, the apostle, uh, has uh, he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is at the day of Pentecost, what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. And these disciples have been waiting in the upper room. They've heard a sound like a rushing wind. Then all of a sudden, tongues of fire appear on their heads. They begin declaring the wonders of God in other languages. All these Israelites and people that have come to Jerusalem are hearing this. They're astounded and they're trying to make sense of what's happening. And Peter, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, stands up and he addresses the crowd. And this is uh, just one piece of what he tells them. It's the piece I want us to focus on. It's in verse 22. It says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This is the word of the Lord. This passage, I think, is beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it makes me think of the line graph of Jesus's life. How would we draw Jesus's life out if we were to draw it on a curve. Well, let's just do that together. And, you know, this won't be perfect, but bear with me as I draw for you now what Jesus' life would look like. Jesus is born, right? That's, that's where it all starts. Is where it starts for you and for me. But Jesus is born with all these miraculous circumstances, angel encounters, right? He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's prophecies being fulfilled. People are recognizing this Jesus. So this was a very, very special birth, a major high. However, right, you know the story. There's no room in the inn. He's born in a barn, in a manger. And after that, it's, it's kind of rocky because Jesus is on the run, right? His parents are trying to protect this child as, uh, as King Herod is wanting to get rid of any child that's aged two and under because he's heard about a king of the Jews. And so he's on the run. And yet it seems that they kind of get settled and he begins to grow in the wisdom and the stature of the Lord. And then there's that time when his parents lost him for a couple days. I guess parenting was a little bit different in that time. And so they lose him for a couple days. That's kind of a bummer, right? Well, we'll, we'll take it down for that. But then Jesus continues to grow in the wisdom and the stature of the Lord, and yet there's this kind of gap where we don't really know a whole lot about Jesus' life. He seemed to live a pretty regular childhood, and then all of a sudden, it's the wedding in Cana. Right? Jesus turns water into wine. He begins to choose disciples, right? He's, he's gaining, he gets baptized. John the Baptist, he, he recognizes him and says that he's this lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. You have this, um, you know, feeding of the 5,000, the miracles. It's like all this amazing stuff. And then all of a sudden we have this kind of rocky pathway with these Jewish leaders that Jesus is constantly having to interact with and, and, and kind of correct and spar with. And then all of a sudden, there's this moment where it's the, what we just read about, by the hands of lawless men. Jesus is crucified. 
major downturn in the story. But what we're talking about as a church is that the story doesn't stop there. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. This is a rough graph. I'll I'll give you that. But just thinking about the life of Jesus, how we might draw it. And what we just read, there's a phrase in there that grabbed my attention. It comes out of verse 23. Peter tells them, though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. According to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You see, God foreknew the downturn of Jesus's life, which means that God has a plan for this. God has a plan for this. He knew what was going to happen. We, we know that God foreknew that because hundreds of years before Jesus was walking and talking on the earth, the prophet Isaiah, he was prophesying that yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely, that he was going to make him a guilt offering, that he would see his seed, he would prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. God foreknew everything that was going to happen. We also know from 1 Peter 1.20, talking about Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in, in these last times for you and for me. That God foreknew this whole story and he foreknew this. He foreknew the crash. He foreknew the downturn. But it's not only that he foreknew it, he had a determined plan. Now, that means that God in his, in his brilliance had already made this amazing plan. And the plan was this, that God was going to get the ultimate glory by sending his son Jesus to pay for the sins of humanity, that this was going to be his determined plan, taking up our sin and our shame upon himself on the cross. God knew about the downturn. God had determined that there would be a downturn. And he knew about the downturn of Jesus's life. But what about your story? What about the parts of your life that look like that? Well, Matthew 10, Jesus famously talks about the sparrows. And he tells his disciples that not one of them falls to the ground without the Father's consent. And then he tells them, you are worth more than many sparrows. What he's telling them is this. Look, God is intimately, he's intimately acquainted with you. He tells them that God even knew the number of the hairs on their head. Did you know that God knows that about you? 
and that he's intimately acquainted with the details of our lives. He knows the line graph of our stories, and he knows about the downturn, and he's got a plan, and it's, and it's a plan that he's working on our behalf. You see, the first point that I think we need to get is that the empty tomb shows us that God does some of his greatest works at life's lowest points. My family right now, um, we are in a low. Like I, have a, I got a call uh, about a week ago now that my mom had gone to the doctor. She'd gotten some x-rays done for some back trouble. They found five spots that were troubling. Turns out they were malignant and that they found spots on her lung and on her liver. And we're just as a family just kind of spinning right now, right? This is a downturn. And yet in the midst of our line graph, we have to hang on to the truth that God does some of his greatest works in life's lowest points. Because the story of Jesus, what we just read about in Acts chapter two, tells us that what looked like a crushing defeat was actually God accomplishing his greatest victory. That God in this foreknown plan, in this predetermined outcome, he knew that it's gonna look bad. It's gonna look like defeat. It's gonna look like loss. But here's what you don't know. There's something happening that's unknown to you. God knows, but it's unknown to you and it's going to result in victory. God does some of his greatest works at life's lowest points. This week, I was listening to a a podcast and Tim Keller, who is a pastor that I uh, revere, and he was telling his story, kind of plotting out his line graph. And he said that in 1989, he and his wife, Kathy, went to plant a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. It was a church that um, began to grow and it was very up and to the right. I mean, uh, eventually that church would reach uh, thousands of people, an average attendance of five or 6,000 people on a Sunday morning in New York City, right? It's, it's a phenomenal story of up and to the right until 9-11 happened. In the same year, Tim Keller is diagnosed with cancer. In the same year, his wife Kathy has a terrible battle with Crohn's disease. That is, uh, it, it was grueling. She had to go through multiple medical procedures in her body. And through all of that, as a leader of a church that's growing and thriving, Tim Keller has to step back and the church suffers. The staff suffers. Things are in disarray and disorder in his life. And as he shared this story, what struck me is that he said, I wouldn't trade it. Because he says he learned how to pray in a way that he had never prayed before. 
God took the lowest point of his life and did some of his greatest work. And that's important to understand because there's a version of Christianity that says to us, if you really have God's blessing, then you won't go through hard times. You may have heard that idea before. Maybe you've just kind of thought that idea before. But let me tell you, that's an actual distortion of the truth about what it means to know and to follow Jesus. You see, in this line of reasoning, if you do go through hard times, it's because God's punishing you or because you're not saying enough faith words over your life. And this is a dangerous distortion because what happens is it affirms the cultural idolatry that we have of up and to the right. And it leaves Christians with a, 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 a guilt complex or with a spiritual elitism where only the anointed ones who really know God have attained the up and to the right kind of life. It is absolutely false. As a pastor of mine used to say, there's a Greek word for that. The Greek word is baloney, right? It's absolutely false. It's not true. The problem with that distortion, with that line of thinking, is there's not a single character that you will find in your Bible who has an up and to the right kind of life, including Jesus. Job lost everything. Joseph thrown into a pit and sold to human traffickers. Moses kills a guy and flees to Egypt. Elijah gets depressed and asks God to take his life. David is anointed king and then has to run for his life as he flees a, a demon-possessed King Saul that's trying to kill him. The list goes on and on and on of people who were really trying to be faithful to their God and whose lives looked like this with big peaks and massive downturns. Another problem with this distortion of Christianity is that it seeks to make black and white, black and white and simplistic things that are not simplistic and that are not so black and white. And if this version of Christianity is true, then why in the world is the New Testament filled with warnings and encouragements about suffering and hardship and endurance? The repeated message of the Bible is, don't give up, because God does some of his greatest works at life's lowest points. And in this understanding, in Jesus, we find strength to go through it. We have strength as we walk in the midst of it. The second thing that I think we need to understand is that the empty tomb promises us that God works even the worst things for the good of his children. Even the worst. 
right? We, we saw this in verse 23 as we were reading in Acts chapter 2. It says that though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Now, Peter, he's, he's digging into him right now. He's, he's up in their face. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But what we see in that passage is this interplay of both man's sin and man's will and yet God's sovereignty even over the most terrible evil circumstances that life could offer even over that. That God works even the worst things for the good of his children. The famous passage that you probably know already, you've probably heard quoted, you've probably used the passage. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is just going to be good. It means that all things, even the bad things, God has the power to turn and to use for our good, for the good of those who love God, called according to his purpose. And I know what you're thinking. <laughs> really? For good? Right? If you have some significant downturns in your life, maybe that's what you're thinking, right? I, I don't know if, if God's really good, right? Then how in the world could he use this for good? How in the world could he allow this? And without the empty tomb of Jesus, the words that I just read from Romans 8.28 would be empty words. But it's this very story of the cross, of the worst of humanity, of the lowest point where God takes it and what looks like defeat, God turns for the greatest victory and he uses it for the good of those who love him. God has the power to take the worst and use it for our best. And if you haven't found the good yet, then God's not done yet. Because our story doesn't end here. Our story ends here. God takes the worst and he uses it for the best because verse 24, so good. It was not possible for him to be held by death. Evil doesn't get the last word. Injustice doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. And in Jesus, we find the grace to not be crushed by it. Because we know he works it for good. Lastly, 
our victory. The third thing I think we need to understand is that the empty tomb declares that God's plan will prevail over all things. I'll say it again. The empty tomb declares that God's plan will prevail over all things. You see, it's easy for us to believe that what is, is what will always be. What is, is what, will, is what always will be. Here's what I mean. If you think about the story of, let's say, the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. You may know that story of how they fled from Egypt, right? They, they leave slavery from Pharaoh and then they, um, they grieve God's heart and then he makes them wander for 40 years. And I just imagine in the middle of 40 years of wandering that somewhere along the way, they just kind of stopped counting and they probably stopped dreaming of a different place. They stopped dreaming of a promised place or a promised land. You see, it's the middle that's so hard. It's when we're in the middle of it that we kind of lose our focus. We, we forget the promise and we begin to believe that what is, is what will always be. And if you're in the middle, then you need to hear this. That God's plan will prevail over all things. With confidence, we can say God's plan will prevail. You could write it over the graph of your life. You could just simply write God's plan will prevail because this is the truth. This is our confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in what he has purchased for us through his cross and through his resurrection. We know that God has all power. He has a, a determined plan and hit his plan will prevail. Oh, and by the way, his plan is good. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you, get this, a hope and a future. Our God is good. His plans are good and his plans will prevail, which means in Jesus we find hope to see beyond it. We find hope to see beyond it. So, today, the empty tomb shows us that God does some of his greatest works at life's lowest points. It shows us that the empty tomb promises us that God works even the worst things for the good of his children. And lastly, the empty tomb declares that God's plan will prevail over all things. And I want you to just, as we close, hear these things from the heart of God. I don't know where you are. Some of you might be here. And the word of God 
and the heart of God tell us repeatedly, hang on, trust me. Hang on and trust me. If you're in the middle, don't forget God's plan will prevail and his plan is good. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, one who follows him, one who believes in him, one who has given himself or herself to learn from him, then here's what I want to say to you. The heart of God and the word of God says to you, turn to me. So let me leave you with those words. Hang on. Trust me. Turn to me. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.